All right. I am now joined by my friend Nick Manley, uh, who is a anarchist writer. He's had stuff at the Center for Stateless Society, uh, and he's uh, he's also um, a very good chess player. He teaches chess, and uh, and you know he's kind of an amateur historian. So uh, I thought this might be fun. We actually did this once for a uh, Patreon episode on uh, Give Them an Argument, the YouTube channel, uh, that uh, that he could come to talk to me a little bit about the history and politics of uh, of Soviet chess. Uh, so, uh, Nick, how are you doing today? Good fine. How are you, Ben? Uh, I'm doing, I am doing pretty well. So, what's, uh, so, so I know you've been doing some reading about this stuff. What have you been reading? Um, well, actually, the reading was in the past tense, but I've read um, Soviet Chess 1917 to 1991 by Andrew Soltis, and Masterpieces and Dramas of the Soviet Championships, Volume 1, 1928 to 1937, Sergei Veronica. Yeah, so... It's funny, actually, uh, just the other day, so when I was in Toronto, um, I, I did a, um, uh, I did an event for my, my book in Toronto, and I remember, um, while I was there, I was talking to somebody afterwards, uh, about, uh, Trotsky, and, and I remember telling him this line I remember from this, um, like three, there's this like three volume series of of uh, of Trotsky's uh, military writings from the Russian Civil War, and that I I mean I read this forever and ever and ever ago, but uh, I remember this line has always stuck out in my head where he says that you know he's kind of making fun of the idea that sort of having like you know, decentralized militias instead of an army to fight the civil war against the counter-revolutionaries would be more uh, socialist. And he has this line where he says, look, there's no specifically socialist way to organize it, you know, to, to like win a war. Just like he says that there's, uh, that you could probably tell the entire history of like feudalism and capitalism and socialism by talking about the sort of evolution of chess playing over that time, but there's no specifically socialist way to make play chess. So, uh, like I said, I don't even remember how that came up, but you know, that's in my head right now. So, but, but tell me, tell me just a little bit about sort of the effect of the Russian revolution and the rise of the, you know, Soviet system on, you know, kind of the, you know, the culture of Soviet chess. Well, for one, um, as discussed, in the masterpieces and dramas of the Soviet championship, uh, when there was a when it was convened about the future of chess, they decided to go for state backing over the old like a chess union that was like I bet probably I think based on dues. Yeah. And even Alyekin, who, as I mentioned on that, came from white stock, uh, was never even he agreed. Uh, the Bolsheviks you spearheaded. Uh, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, 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 Nick, your voice just got really faded. Uh, can you repeat that last um, sentence? Even Alexander Alyekin, who was of white stock and aristocratic background, um, yeah. 
he even agreed with A L Y I N dash I, I, I don't know why your voice just got really soft again. Ilan Zizinski, who was the Bolshevik who spearheaded um, getting chess noticed by the government, by the yeah. Soviet state. He even agreed with him that the future existence of chess, quote, is only possible with state organizations take care and govern it because the chess, the old all-Russia chess union was seen as insufficiently capable, as it says, quoting of supporting the mass chess movement. So one thing that changes chess got mass attention all throughout society under the Soviet. It wasn't just a preoccupation of the nobility or people of leisure or the bourgeoisie, I guess, to put it in terms of Marx and listeners. The nobility and the bourgeoisie would relate yeah. to. So, and they would, they, and they use that state control to try to really radically egalitarianize, like they eliminated appearance fees for masters. And at one point I read in the drama of Soviet Unitist, they eliminated grandmaster title and they brought it back when they, when they had groomed Mikhail Batovic to go compete for the uh, world championship title and the, you know, the kind of bougie world of E-Day and international chess. But they actually had the grandmaster title abolished at one point. That's how serious they were about left-wing game. But, um, yeah. So, a lot a lot changed. Mass funding and um, also uh, the party was more involved in chess was more politicized. Mm-hmm. The party was more involved in granting and kind of grooming certain players to represent the Soviet Soviet culture and Soviet yeah. sport and um, politics abroad. Yeah, so... Go on. Yeah, so, so let's talk about that part, right? The sort of representing the Soviet Union abroad, like... Uh, I'm sure some people listening to this have seen, like, uh, you know, Queen's Gambit on Netflix and have, like, a, you know, a little bit of a sense of this, but, like, uh, you want to talk a little bit about the sort of role of this and sort of... Um, Soviet, you know, I don't know, I guess you'd say, like, sort of soft diplomacy in the Cold War and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, I, there's a collection of Botvinnik's games. He was seen as, like, the patriarch of the Soviet school of chess, that he was world champion more than once. And um, he, uh, he, he, like, I think it's 100 selected games, he says in the beginning, and given he was a party man, I believe this wasn't yeah. necessarily forced on him, he says, you know, he, he fights for the greater honor of the Soviet state. It's not like an individualistic or like all about money or some personal pursuit. He's He sees himself as representing. And he also talks about bringing chess to the working classes, which yeah. is, even though he was a master. So he, uh, the irony is that even though there's a, a Soviet official quoted in Andrew Soltis saying they don't care about cultivating an individual, super individual, but, you know, strange chess to the masses, they ended up doing both. I mean, they had the, the strongest grandmasters in the world for quite some time. So. But they also ran all worker competitions and all union competitions and massified 
you know, chest throughout the USSR. Yeah, which which is something that, like, I imagine in, in a way, right? I mean, even if this isn't how they ideologically saw it, I mean, in a way, the two could, you know, could work together, right? I mean, so if they're if they're sort of, um, you know, bringing chess to the masses and having all of these, like, kind of popular pyramids and all that stuff, uh, I mean, I would assume on the face of it that that would be, you know, a pool of, of, of talent that, you know, they're going to be able to sort of, like, sift and you know and and uh and and find um and defy the people who are going to be the like super players who rise within the system yeah i think the, the perception i got was that like chess like there's a book russian versus fisher that has previously secret documents from various state organs published and they talk about kind of Fisher's eccentric individualism with disdain, and they note that all their masters, while they have individuality, are engaged in public work and are like standards of culture for the USSR at large. So I think they did try to integrate it. I think they thought the chess specialists, as they might have called them, had a duty to be representative of sort of excellence in the USSR and to also you know, be a benefit to the massification of chess and politics of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, so like, and I mean, in a way, right. I mean, this is something that I think you could probably say, you know, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into the sort of, uh, the, the intersection between the chess world and the extremely bad things about the Soviet system, you know, the repression of dissent and all of that, but the, um, but, you know, I mean, in a way, I mean, some of what you're describing, I mean, like, does go into maybe, you know, what I think of as, as a good, you know, aspect of that system, that it's something, you know, that, look, I mean, if you have, uh, you know, in the same era, right, I mean, if you're like, um, you know, I mean, if you're a working class kid in like, you know, Chicago or Boston who, you know, is 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 good at this and you know or or you know would have the potential to be really good at this you know it's like much less likely probably that anybody would ever find out that like in this system where um you know there are all these sort of venues for people to um you know people to kind of develop this talent and you know and and, and kind of um you know, and, and kind of get noticed, right? I mean, it's like that uh, that line, uh, you know, there's that famous quote from uh, the biologist Stephen Jay Gould about how the, um, uh, about, you know, people wanting to like study Einstein's brain. And he says he's like less interested in the size and weight of Einstein, you know, shape of Einstein's brain than the fact that, you know, there are surely many people who, you know, could have done what Einstein did, who, you know, lived and died in, you know, fields and in sweatshops, right? And I mean, without quite being that dramatic, I mean, I think that it's um, probably just in terms of, again, even if it's not what they really wanted to emphasize, probably just in terms of, like, cultivation of, you know, individual talent that might otherwise go undiscovered. I mean, there are probably some advantages there. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, as Solta says in the introduction, um, you know... The Soviets developed a wonderful network of junior events, and they had various prestigious schools, like the Botvinnik School that Kasparov trained at. And also, as he also notes, the Soviet masters 
were the first government-paid chess professionals, but the monthly stipends comparable to the salary of a well-paid engineer were established around 1950 when the Soviet Union was already enjoying its golden age. So even though like Mon Vinnick was an electrical engineer and Simonoff was a concert pianist, yeah, they they had they didn't have to like grandmas in the US work other jobs necessarily. They were paid and it was it was a relatively well paid position here with the Solstice notes. It was it was um, not so dangerous as being in government service, which under Stalin in the thirties, he well he doesn't say it outright, but he says the thirties could be fatal, so it was a way to be paid to be like a thinking person. Yeah, so I was wondering about that too. I should say, by the way, since we are going to have to, we do have a pretty hard out at like around six or a few minutes after six EST. So if anybody has any questions for Nick, please do go ahead and get in the queue and I'll try to take you before we go. But, uh, but I think that like one, you know, this does get into something that I was thinking about. Um, you know, I think we might have discussed a little bit, you know, when we were, you know, you came on the uh, GTA episode for patrons, which is that, you know, like we've kind of been talking about the intersection between the chess obsession and the, you know, the good, uh, you know, kind of egalitarian aspects of the Soviet system. Uh, but, uh, but there is, I mean, that quote that you just read does get at something I was wondering about, which is a possible connection in the other direction, right. You know, between, you know, between the chess obsession and the, uh, and the really bad aspects of the Soviet system, because there is a, you know, there is an obvious sense in which, okay, so at different stages of Soviet history, this is going to be like, you know, more true or less true. I mean, I think, um, as far as I know, I wouldn't claim to be an expert, but I mean, as far as I know, nobody was being like executed for being a political dissident in like the 1970s, but you were like maybe harassed for being a political dissident and you couldn't get it published except sort of like individually, like, you know, photocopied Samizdat and, you know, and, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, they made, they made life hard for people and did much worse in some cases. Uh, so it, it does seem like there's this obvious way in which, um, like it's this sort of very safe way, uh, to, uh, to be an intellectual in a system where, you know, if you think the wrong thing, you know, you could get into real trouble. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the thing is as the, um, you know, as sort of the party and the sports state committee, they would, you know, favor like Karpov as the golden boy and Botvinnik was the golden boy, Soviet establishment. And, I was reading like Kasparov's autobiography and I forget exactly so people can look it up, but he would talk about how, you know, like, like in terms of permission to travel to certain tournaments or stuff, you know, they would want to give an edge to Karpov. Yeah. They did try to kind of manage things. And like when Timonoff lost six to zero to Fisher, a uh, customs guy didn't stop looking past his subversive literature and he said, according to a new chess issue as he brought the books, he said, well, if you've just beaten Fisher, you know, I would have carried them to your car for you. And um, <laughs> they, they, they accused time off of losing on purpose and they went after his career and stuff. So the downside was that um, the party could be very vindictive if he didn't achieve. Right. 
uh, as they desired. Um, I mean, that's probably a point libertarians would make against the welfare state as a whole, but that's a whole other different issue. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's, um, I mean, to my mind, I mean, the sort of advantages of a welfare state don't, you know, I mean, some of them do, right? Some of them exist with or without political democracy, because, like, if you have, um, you know, I mean, just like not dying because you have a treatable disease, but you can't afford to get helped is obviously an advantage that you get regardless of the political system, as long as you have, like, state health care. But I think a lot of the more intangible benefits of a welfare state to my mind only really exist when combined with political democracy. Cause like if, if you have, um, cause if you have like state support, but also like it would be illegal to take it away, you know, uh, for, you know, for like, you know, expressing like what into the United States would be your first amendment rights. That's like a very different thing from like, you know, state support, but like, it could just be, you know, like yanked out, whatever, or like you have, um, or like the, the state is, you know, is in a position to, you know, to do, um, you know, to have like, you know, strings attached. Right. Cause I mean, to, to my mind, like, I'd like, you know, the welfare state, like one of the biggest advantages of like having like, you know, for example, like Medicare for all, rather than just like me, Medicaid, where you have to prove that you're poor enough to qualify, is that you know you don't have to have so you know that like it doesn't empower some bureaucrat to decide whether you deserve help or not, right? You just sort of get it automatically without having to jump through any hoops, you know. So, um, and and a lot of the sort of advantages, like you know, you don't have to worry that if you piss off your boss and lose your job, you know, you're just not going to have any way of supporting yourself, or you're not going to have health care or whatever. Like, I think that given a backdrop of political democracy, having that financial support makes you freer. If, but of course, if you don't have, you know, I mean, if you have a system where you could like be imprisoned or, or even just kind of legally harassed, you know, for, for having the wrong opinions, then obviously that's a very different thing. Um, so, so you mentioned, um, you know, you mentioned Bobby Fisher a couple times earlier. So, I know this in a I know this in a vague way, but like remind me a little bit of sort of the the like the kind of dates of the times when he's like going up against these you know Soviet grandmasters. Like, uh, well, in 1972 in Iceland, he played Boris Spassky. I don't remember exactly what month. Yeah. Okay. So, like, so the early 70s, sure. Yeah, I mean, well, his first interzonal where he faced Grandmasters when he was still 19 was like 1958. Interzonals were used. Yeah, you're getting you're getting very faint to get just FYI. The interzonals were used as part of the cycle to determine the challengers to go champion, and he had lost the call four times. But like this, the Russians are efficient at all encountered Soviets and also secret documents. Yeah, you're just so, so, sorry. Things haven't really been very clear, at least for me, for the last couple of sentences. Can you back up a little bit? Yeah, I was saying there's this book, Russians versus Fisher, which has all of his his uh, match tournament games of Soviet players, and it has Fisher documents, and you see how seriously they took Fisher, but. 
the first games are from an interzonal and he's like 16 or something in in the qualifying cycle you know he would win the u.s championship he'd qualify for the interzonal and he could go on to the candidate matches and maybe end up playing the world champion and he impresses he plays his first soviet players there yeah. But I mean he's like comes in fifth and I think everyone ahead of him is a Soviet player and and they have comments like that uh that they were impressed with him but he wasn't he wasn't at his peak yet. But in like nineteen seventy one or something, before his match with Bassi, he had a blitz tournament where he really just demolished the Soviet players. Um I think he lost like one game out of twenty two or something. Yeah. So, so he was at his prime, and they took it very seriously. They had the and and they speak in terms of dear comrade director. I have documented in much of Fisher book where the leading grandmasters are analyzing Fisher's play and middle game, his end game, you know what he's good at, and giving Spassky advice. So the bureaucracy would definitely it had kind of a as I might say a collectivist effect in bringing the grandmasters together. I don't know to what extent that was coherent to what extent it wasn't, but I don't think they directly threatened any grandmasters with the gulag or anything to provide advice. They, they might have coordinated the grandmasters giving advice. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm also curious, just thinking about this, right? So this is, you know, okay, so the 70s, I mean, thinking about the Cold War, I mean, this is a time when, um, you know, I mean, even though obviously there's some, uh, like, very intense stuff going on in some places, I mean, a war in Vietnam, whatever, there's still, like, something of an overall detente, you know, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, in, the, uh, in, in the Cold War. Uh, also just, uh, you know, but I mean, also just to kind of, terms of the politics of of how this might be important to uh some people to you know to think about you know the you know having this competition with the u.s and the soviet union like um you know fisher himself uh was um was pretty um you know was like I mean, I know Fisher was a member of the Worldwide Church of God, which is like a, uh, well, it's changed a little bit since then. It doesn't exactly exist anymore, you know, in that original incarnation. But I mean, it was this sort of very, like, fundamentalist and, and kind of, like, strange and sort of right-wing church, right? You know, they sort of make, like, you know, predictions about the end of the world and stuff like that. Yeah, he did get into the Worldwide Church of God. That's true. That was, I think he went there into that pretty soon after um, B-Day granted him everything but one request. And since he didn't grant everything he wanted, he didn't play Karpov. So Karpov won the title by default, and then Fisher disappeared. But he did go into the Worldwide Church of God. Yeah. Yeah. which is it's funny I actually see uh the um so I was just looking at his Wikipedia entry and it said in nineteen sixty two interview with Harper's asked if he was Jewish, he replied, uh 
He's part Jewish to his mother. And he was said, quote, I read a book lately by Nietzsche, and he says religion is just to dull the sense of the people. I agree. Uh, but then it says uh, Fisher associated with the Worldwide Church of God in the mid-1960s. Uh, according to his friend and colleague Larry Evans, in 1968, Fisher felt philosophically that the world was coming to an end and he might as well make some money uh, by publishing my 60 memorable games. Um, Fisher thought the rapture was coming soon. It says, uh, during the mid-1970s, Fisher contributed significant money to the Worldwide Church of God. 1972, one journalist said Fisher is almost as serious about religion as he is about chess. Um, so, and then I guess he, you know, I guess he left in the late seventies, but I mean, that is just kind of an interesting note, right? Since this is, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, this is like this very sort of, um, yeah, I mean, again, kind of extreme, you know, fundamentalist organization and the fact that he, uh, you know, I, I guess this is, I mean, you know, not that you necessarily have an answer to this, but I mean, it does make me wonder if like in his own head, there's a kind of connection between the, um, the sort of like whatever kind of resonance there was between his, you know, chess playing with the Russians and thinking about the sort of larger cold war and like this, this kind of, uh, apocalyptic view of the world. Um, are you saying is there a connection between like his, his, his quest against the Russians and chess and his apocalyptic worldview? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't, like I said, I don't know that you'd have an answer to that necessarily. It just does make me wonder about that. Maybe uh, then I could say that there's an article, a psychological autopsy of Bobby Fischer that speculates his anti-Semitism might have come from, he might have developed like a, a complex around the Jewish chess masters. Yeah. Soviet Jewish chess masters, but I mean... I, they don't like layout of argument. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, we we kind of you know to you know to complete this maybe in the last few minutes that have got you uh, when. So we've got, you know, we talked about the sort of effect of the Russian Revolution and the and the kind of rise of you know the Soviet version of state socialism on, um, on the sort of development of, of popular chess culture and, and the, you know, sort of role of chess and Soviet world diplomacy and all of that. Uh, but I, I am curious about the sort of opposite part, you know, like what's kind of happened to, to Soviet chess and the sort of, in the decades, you know, since the, um, you know, since the fall of that system or, you know, Russian chess, I should say. Well, one thing I'm pretty confident of, although I can't cite a source, is um, I think a, no, a, a, no, a, a noticeable number of Eastern European masters and Soviet players immigrated to the U.S. Um, I've played, I was at a tournament as a teenager in the North American Open where I played an IM, I think, with some Eastern Europe, an international master. And that's I mean, and Russia still maintains the chess federation, and there's still Russian chess players, but uh, haven't really researched what the landscape looks like. But my guess is it's well, 
it might be that a lot of people still know how to play chess. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, I'm sure the sort of, I mean, the culture, um, you know, was built up enough. It's certainly not going to go away. So it's probably, if nothing else, there's certainly going to be a, you know, disproportionate, you know, compared to most countries, um, you know, number of, of, uh, of people who are playing at a pretty high level. Yeah, I don't have any hard data on that. I can say that the Fisher boom, though, did, I mean, he spread it around the world. I mean, the Soviets had already spread it in the USSR, but Fisher helped spread it even further, especially it became a big deal in the U.S. for once. There were kind of a resurgence with the Queen's Gambit. But, uh, right. So, I mean... Yeah. Yuri yeah. Averbach is still alive, and he was around during the Soviet Union. He's a hundred, and he's an in-game spirit, and he's still alive and still involved with the Russian Chess Federation, and he's from the Soviet era. A lot of the Soviet players have died, obviously. But right. <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, so, thank you, Nick. This was really interesting. Um, is um, so so before we uh, you know before we go, is there anything you want to plug? Well, I thought your your listeners might appreciate this quote from the first chapter of Andrew Stoltz's Soviet chat. And it's, it's Austria's foreign minister in March 1917, joking about Leon Trotsky. And he says, Russia is not a land where revolutions break out. Besides, who on earth would make a revolution in Russia? Perhaps Herr Trotsky from the Cafe Central? And he's playing, Trotsky was spending most of his time playing chess at this celebrated Vienna Cafe. So that was the Austrian foreign minister. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yep, yeah, Cafe Central, that's where, yeah, Trotsky and uh, Sigmund Freud and uh, a, uh, you know, I mean, a pretty remarkable number of significant historical figures in retrospect would go and play chess and do other things there, so, um, so yeah, that is a, uh, that is a really fun quote. Um, okay. Well, uh, this is great. So uh, we'll uh, we'll have to uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. Oh yeah, yeah, we should. Thanks, Ben. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right, thank you. Bye. Bye.